0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew seven twelve through 23 So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Susie. Good morning, everybody. We are uh, on number three this week in a seven-part series that we're calling Doubting Christianity. We're exploring several different uh, hang-ups that uh, the people who don't identify with Jesus Christ uh, would say that, that, that are keeping them from doing so. And uh, you know, as we've said before, this is a great opportunity for uh, those who believe and those who aren't sure what they believe or, or whether to believe uh, can gather together and, and hopefully uh, process these things together. And uh, it's my job just to set the table for those conversations uh, during this series. But uh, today's uh, question that we're going to explore is, isn't Christianity too narrow-minded. And uh, I'll start with a definition from the dictionary. Uh, The word is paradox, and the definition of paradox is this, a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. And uh, those who've been around Christianity for a while know that Christianity is a belief system that is filled with paradoxes. Uh, For instance, to find your life, you have to lose your life. Uh, If you want power, then you have to lean into your weakness. If you want to be great, then you have to be a servant. If you want glory, uh, then you have to be humble. Uh, If you want to be rich in the truest sense of the word, then you have to be open-handed and generous. And So today we're going to explore another paradox uh, of Christianity, and that's what we'll call the paradox of the narrow gate. And the paradox of the narrow gate says two things. Number one, uh, Christianity is exclusive, it's narrow, on the other hand. It's the most inclusive movement in the history of the world. It's exclusive and it's inclusive all at the same time. So exclusive, for example, Jesus Himself said in the fourteenth chapter of John that He is the way, not a way, but the way, truth and the life, and no one comes to God except through Him. It says a similar thing in the book of Acts, the fourth chapter, that there is no other name given under heaven, whereby people can be saved, people can get to God except through the name of Jesus. And even in our passage today, Jesus says, the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Exclusive on the one hand, incredibly inclusive on the other. Jesus even loved His enemies. And he said, If you're going to be my follower, if you're going to identify with me, then you've got to love your enemies too. It's how people will know that you belong to me, is that you don't respond in the way that the rest of the world does to things like enmity. You will love your enemies. And Jesus demonstrates that just by virtue of his circle of friends, which included prostitutes and crooks and poor people and lepers and people of different faiths. And so, so people who, who were opposed to Him, He would reach them by loving them. Uh, people who were uh, excluded from regular human interaction and, 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 and human community, Jesus would include and draw them in. Jesus' longest recorded conversation is with a promiscuous woman from Samaria. Morally, ethnically, and religiously, and politically, this woman is the opposite of Jesus Christ, and yet His, his longest recorded conversation is with her, and, and He treats her with warmth and, and affection and kindness and generosity of spirit. He speaks the truth to her. He loves her all at the same time. The people who are most notably the enemies of Jesus are the people, on the other hand, that you would least expect, the religious people, the churchgoers, the Bible readers of the day. It says in Luke chapter 15 that that people with jobs like mine, you know, professional Christians or professional religious people, it says that they grumbled at Jesus because He welcomed sinners and ate meals with them. And even here in verse 21 and the verses that follow, Jesus says, many will say to me on the last day, on the judgment day, Lord, Lord, people will call me Lord, and they'll say, did we not, did we not pray, did we not heal people, did we not, did we not cure people of their anxieties, did did we not do many great things, many great works in your name? And Jesus says, I'll say to them, I never knew you. We were never together. We were never really on the same page. And so what I want to do is explore today a couple of questions, actually three, uh, to get to the bottom of what Jesus is teaching here. And those questions are, what is the broad gate? What is the narrow gate? And then which one is the best gate? So uh, what is the broad gate? The broad gate, according to Jesus, is every gate in the universe, whether it's a religious gate, a philosophical gate, an ideological gate, a, a political gate, whatever kind of gate. Every gate in the world that doesn't lead people to Jesus is part of the broad gate. You know, the thinking of the broad gate goes like this. There's one mountain, and on the top of the mountain is God, or whatever your version of God is, meaning significance, happiness, your wildest dreams, eventual heaven. There's one mountain. On top of that mountain is the goal, the prize. Let's call it God. And anyone can climb that mountain any way they want. There are all kinds of paths uh, that you can follow to get up there, many roads. And none of the roads is allowed to claim superiority over the other roads, which ironically is a claim of superiority. <laughs> to say that the idea that all roads lead to one place and, and that's the best way to think about things is actually a claim of superiority, as it claims that no road's allowed to call itself superior. It's called religious relativism. Familiar language uh, in religious relativism would include statements like, You live your truth. You be you, be true to yourself, follow your heart, follow your dreams. Whatever makes you happy, do that. Now, now there's a religious angle that uh, I think is really the primary way of, of looking at the broad road through Jesus' teaching here. And, and that religious angle would say that, that all faiths are valid. Buddhism has its eightfold path, Islam has its five pillars, Hinduism has karma, Confucianism has filial piety, and all the other religions have their, their, their thing, their, their approach, their philosophy, their road that you need to follow. But really what it boils down to, according to religious relativism, is that all roads really are the same. They've got so much more in common than, than what they don't have in common. So pick a path, put on your boots, and start climbing. Get to work. That's what religion says. And as ethical systems, religions like Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Confucianism actually do overlap in in many ways with Christian teaching as ethical systems. For instance, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity all agree and and, and forever have agreed uh, on what a healthy picture of sex and marriage looks like. They've all agreed on those things. All three have agreed. These are the three largest religions in the world, Islam, uh, Judaism, and Christianity. You could throw Hinduism in there as well. Uh, uh, All three have believed in a heaven, a hell, a judgment, uh, that that you can be in relationship with, with God through things like prayer, through a sacred text. All of them believe there's one God and only one God, and every other God is a false God. So, as ethical systems, there, there is some overlap with, with Christianity and the major religions, but as, as salvation systems, however, all religions are entirely different and opposite of what Christianity says. All religions except for Christianity could be represented in, in, in what Buddha said as he was dying. Buddha's dying words were, strive without ceasing. That's what religion says. Strive without ceasing. Put on your boots, get to work, start walking up that hill. Christianity is different because Christianity says that the first thing you have to do in order to enter through this narrow gate is stop striving, to stop working and believe and receive. The broad gate says that at the finish line, if you strive hard enough, if you can figure out a way through whatever path you choose to get up that mountain to the very top, there will be a well-done, good and faithful servant waiting for you at the top of that mountain. If you ever seen Free Solo? It's kind of like that. You know, figure out how to get up there, and if you get up there, you get to do this, right? The problem is nobody can get up there except one person. Okay? The narrow gate gives you the well-done, good and faithful servant, not at the top of the mountain, but at the bottom. Before you even get started, well-done, good and faithful servant is pronounced over you because Jesus has already climbed the mountain. See, it's, it's completely different as a salvation system, even though ethical systems might overlap some. You know, Christianity does not say there are all kinds of roads that will get you to the top. Christianity says it's a maze. The mountain is like a maze. Every path except one, you will get blocked, and you're not going to make it. One path. And, and the only way to travel that path is to jump on somebody else's back and fall asleep while he carries you all the way up. And so, the narrow path, Jesus says, is a hard path. Ha! That actually sounds easy. It it actually, that's that's another paradox. It's a hard path. The narrow path is a hard path. I'm going to talk about why in a minute. But it's also the easiest thing that you could ever imagine. Somebody else carries you. So, the false prophet, Jesus says, the the person that he identifies here as the false prophet, is also in other places in Scripture referred to by Jesus as a wolf. And so, if you… if if you've ever uh, heard the story Little Red Riding Hood or had that read to you or read it to somebody, um, there's a wolf in there that resembles the false prophet because what the wolf does is he dresses up like Little Red Riding Hood's grandmother to to present himself as unthreatening, caring, nurturing, there for you, and so on. You know, the, the, the wolf dresses up like her grandmother, but, but his end game is to eat her. And that's what falsehood will eventually do. It will make promises to you. It will take you in. It will stroke you and nurture you and pat your back, and eventually it will eat you. And you do not have to be religious for this to happen. You know, David Foster Wallace, uh, before he took his own life, David Foster Wallace uh, was a, an academic philosopher, writer, university professor, Cornell graduate, etc.. very, very bright man, and he wrote this masterful essay called "This Is Water." And you can get it you can get it on uh, the Internet. you just Google it. This is water. David Foster Wallace. But here's an excerpt, and this is from a person who does not believe in Christ and who would not identify with with any specific religion. He says this, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship, be it God or some inviolable set of ethical principles. Pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, they will, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And so, this this kind of thing happened to me in New York City when, when we lived there several years ago. I was in a room, everybody in the room in the meeting except me was a graduate of an Ivy League university. And so, I'm sitting here feeling, you know, insecure and thinking, okay, what kind of thing that, that can I say that sounds smart? What kind of word can I use that sounds like a smart person's word? And so, in the course of conversation, I used the word inertia, and a graduate from Brown University in the room looked at me in front of everybody and said, don't you mean momentum in the way that I was using the word? And, and, uh, and of course, I felt completely stupid. I did the Chris Farley Saturday Night Live thing. I'm so stupid, you know. And um, by the way, I know there are physicists and English majors in here, and you're going to try to catch me after the service and say, actually, inertia and momentum, they're kind of compatible words, and they sort of… Don't ruin my sermon illustration. (laughs) I felt dumb because I was chasing up the wrong path on a mountain that I can't get up unless Jesus carries me on His back. So, what's the narrow gate? The narrow gate is the way of Jesus, right? Broad gate is everything that doesn't lead you to Jesus. The narrow gate is the one that does. Jesus says, beware of false prophets. He says, not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of My Father in heaven. Wait a minute, I thought you said we don't have to do anything. I thought you said that that this isn't a religion of works, and I continue to say that. You know, Jesus says in another gospel, John chapter 6, this is the will. You want to do the will of God? You want to do the work of God? This is it. This is the will of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent, that you believe in Jesus, that through Jesus you're completely forgiven of every wrong that you've ever done and every wrong that you ever will do, that you are completely blameless in the eyes of God because Jesus stood in your place and lived the perfect life, climbed the mountain because you can't. Put on his boots because you don't even have boots to put on your own feet. And that you're completely loved in the sight of God, that, that God loves you as much as he loves Jesus, because Jesus stood in your place. See, David Foster Wallace again, I'll go back to his little excerpt there. He says, Anything else you worship, if it's not God, it's going to eat you alive. Maybe that's why Jesus chooses the word healthy. To unpack the meaning of what he's saying here. He says a healthy tree is going to bear good fruit, but a diseased tree, represented by the broad path, bears bad fruit. The narrow path is going to lead to to health and healing and and, and rest and and the unburdening of a a human soul, whereas the broad path, religion, works-based stuff, strive without ceasing, will only burden you You know, and the question is asked about Christianity, why do you got to be so narrow? Why do you got to just… Why can't there just be a lot of roads? Why can't we just choose for ourselves? Why do you got to be so narrow? Do you ask that question about other areas of life? Why you got to be so narrow? You want physical health. Why can't you eat donuts and smoke cigarettes and live sedentary? You have to narrow yourself to a certain way of living if you want to be healthy and fit. You want a strong marriage, you want to say yes to a strong marriage, you have to say no to workaholism, porn, and selfishness. You have to. You have to narrow yourself, your options. You want to be great at music, you've got to narrow what you do at your time. With your time, I read this uh, interview with, with Keith Richards, guitarist for the Rolling Stones, and he says that Mick Jagger always leaves parties early. Why does he leave parties early? Is is it because he's 75 years old and he's tired and wants to go to bed? And Keith Richards says, no, that's not why. He leaves parties early so he can go practice and do his vocal runs. Seventy-five years old, millions of records, gajillions of dollars, icon, rock and roll history and hall of fame, still practices his vocal runs instead of hanging out late at the parties. You know, you've got to do your scales instead of binging on Netflix. If you want to be a great guitarist, you have to develop certain patterns, which means saying no to everything else. If you want a great grade point average, set you up to get into the college of your choice, you've got to discipline yourself not to do video games all the time so that you can set aside time to study and devote yourself. You want to be financially prosperous? You've got to narrow the way you live your life. You've got to work hard instead of being lazy. You've got to adopt certain financial disciplines instead of being a spendthrift. You want spiritual health. You have to dive in regularly to the means of grace. You have to read the… you have to try to read the Bible almost like every day. And, and, And you have to pray like every day. And you have to go to church every week instead of 1.7 times a month. Church in the middle of July should look like Easter Sunday. And if you want to know why the American church and American Christianity is so anemic, it's because we've lost a sense of narrowing our options for that which is most valuable. You want the fire, but you don't want the commitment. And you want it for your kids as well, but you care a lot more about them getting into Vanderbilt than you do about the development of their souls. You, you can't sequester religious life and say that the principles work differently over here than they do in the rest, of, er, er, the rest of life. You have to organize your life and your children's life around your worship, not the other way around for this to work, for you to get meaning out of this. And here I am preaching to the people who show up. (laughs) What I want to do is to encourage the continuation of that. You know, Ligon Duncan, who's a, a minister in our tribe, this is to parents. He says, Prioritizing church every week, bringing your children with you, teaches your children that God is the most important thing in the world. Not doing that teaches them that you think something else is. Oh, my kids, you know, they say the church isn't fun. Do they say that about homework? Do they? Do they say that about sleep and eating vegetables and making their bed? Of course they say it's not fun, but you make them do it because it's a higher value than fun. And let me tell you something, you want me me to tell you the kids who end up leaving the church after they graduate and they get to make their own decisions? It's the kids whose parents prioritized them having fun in church instead of being loyal and becoming great. And the ones who end up having a lot of fun as Christians, as spiritual people, as people who dive into local churches and campus ministries are the parents who took them to church every week whether they liked it or not. It catches on. Patterns form people. Lack of patterns deform people. Take my word for it. I've been been doing this 25 years. You want your kids to love Christ in their 20s and 30s, tell them to suck it up on Sunday morning because this matters. It matters. Okay, soapbox, stepping off of it. It's a hard road. It's what makes it valuable. Anything ever in your life been effortless? and valuable. Faith is no different. Focus, prioritize. You know, it says in Philippians, work out. It doesn't say work on, it says work out your salvation, the salvation you already have. Work it out, for it's God who works in you to work and to act according to His purpose. And you know, the healthy faith is like a workout. It says no to competing options. It becomes priority number one. If God is the most important thing in your life, then God becomes your functional first priority. You say yes to certain practices that lead to flourishing, as in every other area of life, like health and work and marriage and friendship and so on. One more reason why Christianity is hard is because it requires you to admit What the broad gate doesn't require you to admit. The broad gate says, work hard, and if you feel like you're succeeding, you're going to be proud. If you feel like you're failing and floundering, you're going to feel discouraged and ashamed. That's what religion does. You're either filled with pride or you're filled with shame. There's really not a lot of in-between. But the fruit of the narrow gate is a healthy fruit, because what it does is it simultaneously humbles you out of your pride and lifts you out of your shame. It says, yeah, you're worse off than than you ever dared to think, and you're more loved than you ever dared to hope at every given moment. See, that's what's so hard. That's why Jesus says this incredibly easy path where all you have to do is get on His back, and He carries you all the way up the hill. is so hard because you have to admit something that you can't get up there alone. And then it calls for a reorientation of your whole life, you know. You're you're not your own. You're bought with a price. Everything about you suddenly belongs to Jesus. You know, your time, your money, your sexuality, your relationships, your friendships, the way way that you do your business, the way you conduct your work, it all belongs to Him now. And so, this really presses the last question, which is the best gate? Now, I want to make a brief case for the narrow gate being the best gate. Uh, which is also the reason why we should say no or at least consider saying no to every other gate and forsake all others like you do when you get married, right? To have and to hold, forsaking all others. There's a reason why you forsake all others because there is no solid marriage that has a third party in it. No such thing. Jesus is a healer. You know, back to this word healthy. Imagine you find a lump, you know, somewhere on your body, under your arm, whatever. You go to the doctor, they scan it, and, and the doctor sees cancer on, on you know, on the, on, the, on the film. It's a malignant tumor on the pathology report, and the doctor reports back to you, good news, no issues here. Be free. There's only three possibilities in that scenario. Either the doctor is evil and wants you to die, Or the doctor is unqualified, doesn't know how to read an x-ray. Or the doctor is a coward who wants to avoid a socially awkward moment by delivering hard news that's going to require some cutting and digging and uncertainty. Jesus does a whole lot more, though, than just tell you you are sick. He can also make you well. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace with God was laid upon Him by His wounds. It says in Isaiah 53, we are healed. You know, everywhere you go that Jesus is, healing is always going to follow. I I look out today. I looked out early at the earlier service, and I'm looking out now, and, and I'm seeing faces, identifiable faces and stories today that include marriages that have been mended. Because the couple walked into a room where Jesus was at work, addictions are are, are now on a path of sobriety, depression is, is now on a path toward hope, lonely people have found friends, and dying people in this very room right now are not afraid. Because wherever Jesus shows up, healing will follow, you know? He healed paralytics, blind people, ten lepers, a hemophiliac woman, people who were anxious, raised dead people to life. Here's the last paradox. When you realize that the burden isn't on you to climb the mountain anymore, it actually makes you want to start climbing. It actually makes you want to give your life to this endeavor. When you hear well done at the bottom of the hill as your starting point, the recognition that you're already forgiven, you're already blameless, and you're already loved in the sight of God, when when, when that starts to sink in, it will make you want to give your life. It will make you want to surrender to the path of Jesus as well as to the person of Jesus. It will heal your soul, and it will transform your ethics, because when you see how loved you are it, it 's you know his wish being your command is too small a thing there 's a transformation that starts happening in your heart where his command actually becomes your wish, where you actually love to have God tell you what to do and how to live and how to think because you know the Father knows best. I have met thousands upon thousands of Christians in my life i 've never met a single one. All of them have narrowed their options to one, Jesus. I've never met a single one who's had a single regret about that. Be encouraged by these words. The narrow path is hard and so easy. It's exclusive and so inclusive. Jesus says, come. Will you come? Let's pray. Lord, thank You that You have provided a way, and You've not just provided a way. You are the way. You're the truth. You're the life. No one comes to the Father except through You, and anyone can come to the Father through You. Teach us what it means even now as we come to Your table, what it means to exchange the burden of performance and works-based salvation systems, to being unburdened. Teach us what it means to exchange the imperative to strive without ceasing. For the declaration, it is finished. Teach us that narrowing our options down to one is true health, true flourishing. And true freedom. Because everywhere you are, healing will follow. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.